You're listening to the Liberty Grace Church Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit libertygrace.ca. So there are different things in life that make us reflect on life. Uh, For some, I imagine it's happening now as they look up to a sky that is darkened by smoke, either from the wildfires raging across Canada or perhaps the war that rages through Uh, between Russia and Ukraine. But for others, it might be something more usual, like a death in a family, or the birth of a child, or even a bad breakup. But for most, I imagine it was the recent global pandemic and lockdown when everything ground to a halt. Now, I don't know what's going on in each of your lives or what event has caused you to reflect recently, but I wonder when you do, what would the conclusion of your reflections be? You know, as you try to process all that's going on in your life, how far would your worldview take you? As for the dread pirate Roberts from The Princess Bride, his conclusion was this, life is pain, highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something. Would that be your conclusion as well? Or maybe you would say with Shakespeare that all the world's a stage and all the men and women are merely actors. Well, if that's the case, then what's happening behind the curtains? And who's directing this cosmic play? And is it a comedy or a tragedy? See, friends, there's so much noise so much glamour, so much angst in our world today, from the news to social media and even in movies and music, we're getting it from all sides, as clear as Dolby Vision with spatial audio. The world is trying to dictate to us how to think, how to feel, and even what to value. And yet, I am fully convinced that God's word is able to cut through all the noise if you let it. It will serve you well to find meaning in the fleeting. Now, Pastor Darrow told me that you guys are working through the whole Bible in a year, which I think is awesome. And I have the privilege of giving you a taste of the book of Ecclesiastes. So let's just get out of the way now. The name of the book sounds a little funny, doesn't it? Ecclesiastes. Um, It basically means preacher or teacher, someone who speaks to an assembly of people, kind of like what I'm doing now. Now, the book is in a category known as wisdom literature in the Bible, and its primary interest is not relating a list of theological truths or an account of history or a picture of the future. Rather, it focuses on the ways of things. See, its concern is to help you know truth from error and right from wrong in our life experiences and then direct us to live in the fear of the Lord. This is why wisdom literature isn't cut and dry. It isn't neat and tidy because it's teaching you how to live in a world that isn't neat and tidy either. A commentator writes that Ecclesiastes is not the kind of book that we keep reading until we get the answer, 
but rather is the kind of book that you, helps us to know how to serve God even when we do not have all the answers. So this is good because now more than ever, it feels like everyone is searching for something that feels just out of reach. I mean, if we're all honest, we've had a taste of what is called disillusionment. That's the experience of having something not live up to your expectations. So you might crave a relationship or a spouse only to get one and find out that relationships are messy and not rosy like you find out in rom-coms. You crave that job with a bigger paycheck only to realize that there is a bigger cost to your bigger pay. You wrestle with identity, so the world tells you, just define your own identity until the reality dawns that nothing in the world works that way for a reason. See, I don't need to go on because you can probably think of instances in your own lives when you've experienced disillusionment. We find that our experiences don't live up to our expectations. We have hearts full of castles, but hands full of sand. What I want us to see from our passage today is that our eyes, hearts, and hands long for more than this world can offer. We'll learn this by considering four things. The question we all ask, the proof we all see, the lesson we all learn, and the hope we all need. So let's start with the question we all ask. In verse 1, we are introduced to the preacher. We're not told explicitly who he is. However, there are many clues given in the book. So even if you suck at guess who, you might be able to figure this one out. So first clue, in chapter 1, we are told that the preacher is the son of David, king in Jerusalem, in verse 1. And then that he is king over Israel in Jerusalem, in verse 12. Now, if you know your Bible history, you know that the nation of Israel split into the northern and southern kingdoms not long after David's death. So only one of his sons ruled over all of Israel from Jerusalem. But let's keep thinking about this. What other clues do we have? Well, in chapter 2, we are told that this son of David was exceedingly wise and exceedingly wealthy. And then finally, at the end of the book, in chapter 12, we learn that this same son is known for writing and collecting many proverbs. Now, all these hints, when we put them together, point us to one person in history, Solomon, David's son. Now, it's debated whether Solomon actually wrote this inspired book or not, but it is obvious that we are expected to think of Solomon, or at least someone like him, as we read this. A lot of people nowadays like to throw around the phrase, greatest of all time, or goat, if you're trendy. But let me tell you, if anyone knows a thing or two about greatness, it's this guy right here. You can read up on his credentials in 1 Kings 4. See, we are told that God gave him wisdom and understanding that no one else could compare with. And he used his wisdom to try and understand how the world works. He was so famous that people from all around the world came to him for advice. So with such a resume then, 
What does this great and wise king have to tell us? Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. This statement is the issue of life the preacher is wrestling with. And the book of Ecclesiastes is his essay explaining why he has reached this conclusion. The dread pirate Robert says life is pain. The preacher says life is vanity. But before we go any further, we need to first understand what the preacher means. See, the word vanity here is a tricky word that carries subtle differences in meaning throughout the book. It can mean irrational, absurd, or futile, but it can also mean hard to understand or explain. I personally find it funny that the definition of a word of something hard to pin down is hard to pin down. But for the general idea of what the preacher means by this word, just go out on a cold winter day and breathe out. As you watch your warm breath dance in the air and disappear, that's vanity. That's life, the preacher is saying. This reality about our existence is one we find all over the Bible. For example, in Psalm 39, verse 6, the psalmist says, Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather it. And in the New Testament, the Apostle James tells us in James 4.13, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow, we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. See, maybe you felt like this before. Like a mist, a shadow, a vapor. So if life is here one moment, gone the next, hard to understand in between, and life moves on after you're gone, then we can understand what the preacher is asking in verse 3 when he says, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Or to put it in simpler terms, what's the point? What's the point of it all? See, at some point in our lives, we all ask a form of this question. You know, it's, why am I here? What is my purpose? What's the meaning of life? Why is this happening? If you haven't asked these questions before, believe me, you will. See, we all have a deep desire for significance. And we expect that significance to either come from something built into our very existence or from something we can build with our very hands. You don't have to be a Christian to feel this. I believe everyone does. And what we do with this question has a big impact on who we are and how we live our lives. I mean, think about how you prioritize your time or what you do with your resources or how you interact with others, or how you view the things that happen in your life, it all flows out of what you think life is about one way or another. 
And when we ask what the meaning of life is, it kind of shows that we expect there to be meaning, doesn't it? See, we want to matter. We want what we do to matter. Our eyes, our hearts, and our hands long for significance. But there's a problem. The preacher tells us that life is vanity, like trying to hold on to your warm breath on a cold winter day. So he then asks, like we might, what gain or what lasting significance is there to be found for all our efforts in life? What do I get in return for all the things that I do? Dear friends, the assumed response to this rhetorical question is nothing. Nothing. When we labor for all that this life has to offer, we find that we labor in vain. We strive after the wind. But the preacher doesn't want us to just take his word for it. So he calls our attention to our second point this morning, the proof we all see. In 1 Kings 4 that I mentioned earlier, we learn that Solomon frequently drew from things you observe in nature to teach and make his point. See, he's all for object lessons. And here in Solomon-type fashion, the preacher points us to the first proof we can all see, which is in creation. If you have your Bible still open to Ecclesiastes 1, you can read in verses 4 to 7, he says, A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the winds return. All streams run to the sea, but the sea's not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. See, he points us to the earth, the sun, the wind, and the streams. He intentionally chooses these aspects of creation, which symbolize all of creation, to prove his point that all is vanity. From the sun in the sky to the sea in the deep. Whether it's the sun that travels from east to west or the wind that blows north to south, every corner of creation holds the proof of the vanity that he speaks of. See, the image he's painting here is the cycle of things. A generation dies off and a new one comes, but the earth just keeps spinning. The sun rises from the east and sets in the west just to race back and do it all again the next day. The wind blows to the south, then to the north. Round and around it goes. And as for the streams, they flow to the sea, yet the sea's not full, so they just keep flowing. The preacher paid attention in geography class, unlike me. <laughs> See, you are meant to feel the monotone of this poetic presentation. Things don't appear to be moving along or changing. The cycles in these verses sound suffocating for those looking for lasting significance here. But surely human beings are better, right? Unlike the streams and the winds, we are intelligent creatures. We can think for ourselves. If we can create things like the new Apple Vision Pro and even Dyson's Zone Air purifying headphones, whatever those are, 
then surely we have found a way to break through the dreaded cycle. Well, the preacher calls us to the second proof we can see in history. In verses 8 to 11, he hones in on humanity to further illustrate his point. He says, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Both the sun itself and those who live under it exist in this repetitive state. We long for satisfaction and significance in this world, but we cannot truly break the cycle, so we experience disillusionment. He says in verse 9, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. At this point, it might be helpful to remind ourselves that wisdom literature is concerned with the ways of things. See, the preacher isn't necessarily speaking to specific instances here, but more to the general human experience. All that happens under the sun has been done before. Of course, there have been advancements in human history over the years, like space shuttles, or robotics, or medicine, or so on. But in another sense, this is kind of like that old marketing catchphrase, new and improved. If it's improved, it's not really new, is it? See, whether it's a horse and a carriage or a flying car, it is still a means of transportation. Whether it's a slingshot or a lightsaber, it is still a weapon. <laughs> whether it's mixed herbs or a cure for cancer, it is still medicine. The same can be said for social media taking the place of wells where people used to socialize, or cyber criminals taking the place of bandits and pirates or even cave drawings and pottery being replaced by the likes of Kindle, Netflix, and Disney+. See, the human heart simply finds different ways to express and experience the same things. So, after considering the question we all ask and examining the proof we all see, the preacher leads us to our third point, which is the lesson we all learn. Look, the preacher tells us, both creation and history show us that there is a cycle that we can't seem to break. Humanity keeps repeating the same thing and expecting a different result. Didn't Einstein have a word for that? We feel weary and frustrated because we yearn and strive for satisfaction and significance only to fall short. The preacher knows a thing or two about having hearts full of castles and hands full of sand. See, from verse 12 in this chapter to the end of chapter 2, he tells us about his personal journeys for meaning and where they led him. I'd encourage you to read it and read the whole book when you can, but here's a summary. 
The preacher looked for meaning and wisdom. This guy had all the credentials and all the letters next to his name you could ever want. All of academia would pay respect to his intellect, and he didn't find meaning there. As someone who taught, taught others, we know that the preacher values wisdom and knowledge, but he also knew that if the purpose of your life is solely academic excellence or knowledge, then truly that is an empty life. So next, he turned his attention to work. He, he built a mini empire for himself and filled it with all sorts of things, and his stuff distracted him for a while, but then he was right back to where he started, bored and unsatisfied. So next, he tried pleasure and wine, but that too lost its appeal. See, it turns out that living your best life now isn't the answer either. He's as smart as you could ever hope to be, as rich as you could ever dream of, and has experienced as much pleasure as any man can. And what does he tell us? It's all vanity. Neither wisdom, wine, wealth, women, or work will give you what you want. Why? Because we all die. <laughs> all is vanity because there is no permanence to what we do. And ultimately, we die. Death is the nail on chalkboard that jolts us awake. Part of that nagging feeling of despair you feel when you live for significance in this life is that you only have one lifetime to achieve it and enjoy it. Tell me, friends, what does the approval of other people matter when you're laying in the dirt? Last time I checked, one million likes, retweets, or followers never brought anyone back from the dead. So what if you top Forbes' rich list? Even if you ask them to bury you with all your stuff, you still can't take it with you. And does it really do any good to be the smartest person in the graveyard? See, the lesson we all learn after asking the question and looking at the proof all around us is that we're not going to live forever. The world will keep turning after we're gone. We labor and we toil in this life, but our eyes, hearts, and hands long for more than this world can offer. The question is, what do you do with this lesson? Do you fight it? I will live forever. Do you try to ignore it? Raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens. Bright copper kettles and warm woolen mittens. Brown paper packages tied up with strings. Are these a few of your favorite things? But when death knocks, or when life sucks, or when you're feeling sad, do you simply remember your favorite things and then you don't feel so bad? You can distract yourself with the sound of music all you want. But at the end of the day, there is still that lingering, deafening sound of your days winding down. Now, you might be feeling the weight of what we've been thinking about this afternoon, which is good. 
You should be feeling it. The preacher wants you to feel it. See, he's trying to burst all those dream bubbles you have that says, if only I had fill in the blank, then I will be truly happy and fulfilled. He isn't doing this because he's a mean and moody Grinch, like some people say. See, he loves life, but he learned the hard way that our eyes, hearts, and hands long for more than this world can offer. He chased after the castles in his heart, but ended up with nothing but sand in his hands, and he goes through much effort in Ecclesiastes to make you feel that despair and longing so that once all your bubbles have been burst, you will be able to listen to what he has to tell you. Now, you might have heard or read the famous line from C.S. Lewis. If you've heard it a thousand times, I'm going to add it one more time, so pardon me, but C.S. Lewis says this, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. See, C.S. Lewis understood what the preacher is trying to do here. He's trying to tear down all your false senses of security so that you will have eyes to see and ears to hear the hope that we all need, which is our last point for this afternoon. The hope we all need. As we track along with the preacher, we begin to see that this frustration we feel, this disillusionment actually has a purpose. We are supposed to long for meaning in the fleeting, but before we can find it, we must first look outside of it. And thankfully, the Bible, as God's word, helps us to make sense of God's world. For example, we look at the sun and what do we see? It rises and it sets and it rushes back to where it began just to do it over and over again the next day. But what is the point The psalmist tells us in Psalm 19 verse 1 that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky proclaims his handiwork. God's glory, friends, that's the point. See, without the right perspective, what is meant for God's glory and our good turns into a cause for despair and disillusionment. The same thing can be said for things like knowledge, work, and pleasure, things which our society so often abuses. These are gifts from God to be enjoyed to his glory in the context that he dictates, not to be taken out of their rightful place by those trying to find their identity and meaning from it. This world was not meant for you to seek your gain from it. The greater son of David, Jesus Christ, He understood this. He spoke more clearly to this than the preacher does. And he says in Mark 8, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Can you hear the difference in the questions? The preacher says, What can one gain from the world? Jesus says, even if you gained the whole world itself, would it be worth it if you lose your soul? And I surely hope everyone here answers, no, it wouldn't be worth it. 
in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us that we should not store up for ourselves treasures on this earth because they don't last. Christian or not, we all need to hear this because it is so easy to get caught up in this world chasing, striving, dreaming. As we go about our daily lives, we need to keep the image of our warm breath dancing in the air as a reminder not to fix our hope on what is here one moment and gone the next. But if you're honest with yourself, does that describe you? It describes me sometimes. Maybe you see your role models on TV or social media and you think, yes, if only I was like so-and-so, then my life would be complete. Is your mind filled with chasing that promotion, that possession, that position, all in hopes that you think you will find meaning in it? Friend, does that really have the substance that you think it does? Or will, will you be left with nothing but hands full of sand when it's all over? Jesus tells us there is something worth striving for. He says in Matthew 13 that the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, and who, on finding the one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. The kingdom of heaven, the rule and reign of God who controls the cosmos and has jurisdiction over life and death. Friends, don't set your hearts on a castle. Set it on the kingdom. This is what breaks through the repetition of a vain life. This is what lasts forever. The despair and frustration we feel began when the first human beings created by God, Adam and Eve, rebelled against him and wanted to find meaning for themselves apart from him. It then created a cycle of what the Bible calls sin that comes from trying to please ourselves apart from God. And as those stuck in the cycle, we can't save ourselves from it. But Christians celebrate the fact that God did what was truly new. The eternal Son of God wrapped himself in mortal flesh and entered into human history. The Lord over the Son comes down to dwell under it because it was only by his death and resurrection that we could be saved from our sins and be made right with our Creator. Friends, without Jesus, all the gain you seek now finds its end in this life. But it's worse than that. If the Bible is to be believed, and I believe it is, then it only goes downhill from here because at the end of your life, you will be held accountable for living a life of vanity and rebellion before your Creator. Apart from God, all your striving for gain in this life leads only to loss in the one to come. So I plead with you, friend, let your questions, let your searching, let your longing lead you to the cross of Jesus Christ. Confess your sins, repent of them, and turn to Him. You won't find meaning anywhere else. 
But let's go back to the language of vanity the preacher uses. Some people, and even some translations, translate this word as meaningless. But I don't believe that's what the preacher is saying in light of his message. See, you breathe out on a cold day and watch your breath vanish in the air. But tell me, just because it's gone, does that mean it was pointless or meaningless? Of course not. Just because it is fleeting doesn't mean it has no purpose. The Bible is quick to remind us that we are far from permanent. But whenever it talks about the fleeting nature of our lives, it is often in the context of calling us to look beyond ourselves and to God. For example, in 1 Peter 1, we read that all flesh is like grass and the glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. But listen to this. But the word of the Lord remains forever. The point of highlighting how temporary we are is both to magnify the one who endures forever as well as to call us to find our hope and meaning in him. This is the hope we all need, to recognize that the vanity of life is not by coincidence, but under the control of the Creator. Friends, we will have many experiences in life, and there will be many things that want our attention, but don't live your life for what has no lasting significance. But on the other hand, we will have many experiences in life that will make us wonder what the point of it all is. But don't let the fleeting nature of this world cause you to despair either. See, our eyes, hearts, and hands long for more than this world can offer, but that is the very thing that God offers us through His Son, Jesus. See, the question we all ask is answered by Him. The proof we all see is explained by him. The lesson we all learn makes sense with him, and the hope we all need is only found in him. Only when we bear this in mind can we begin to find meaning in the fleeting. Please join me in a word of prayer. Father, our lives are full of distractions either from outside of us or from within our very selves. We long and we strive and we hope and we dream, and oftentimes you are not involved in those pursuits. Forgive us for seeking our gain apart from you. We pray you would help those who have trusted in Jesus to know that only in him is that meaning and significance. Only with him is their eternal life. And we pray that those who do not know you, that you would wake them up, that they would see that their longing can't be fulfilled by this world. There is a God-shaped void in their lives that only you can fill. Open their eyes to see this, to turn to you, and to find the hope that you offer them through your son, Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.